Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I chat with reporter Sean Galanka and an activist group, All Voting is Local, about hand-counting ballots in Nye County. Some argue it's a move to secure elections, while others say it's a misguided attempt stemming from a lack of faith in the election system. After that, reporter Howard Stutz talks about two vices that aren't allowed to mix. You can't gamble in or near a strip club. Howard explains more. At the end of the show, Sonia Swanson, one of our friends over at CityCast Las Vegas, talked with our reporter Daniel Rothberg about a complicated and long drawn out conflict between a developer in Las Vegas and the Clark County Commission on building homes near Red Rock Canyon. With the 2022 midterm election fast approaching, there are some rural counties in Nevada who are looking to change how their elections are run. In particular, there are two major efforts. One is to move to a hand counting system instead of using voting machines. There's also an effort to move to all paper ballots. That also coincides with the effort to hand count. Nye County, which is Nevada's sixth largest county, has already implemented these measures. And Esmeralda County is exploring similar efforts. Lander County, which is in central Nevada, went a a different route, and they changed the types of voting machines that they're using. So I sat down and I chatted with reporter Sean Galanka, who's been reporting on all of these changes, and I asked him, you know, why counties are looking to change how their ballots are being counted. At the heart of it, you have a group of Republican county commissioners who are dissatisfied with the way elections are being run in Nevada and they they want to get rid of voting machines. You have a lot of voters in Nye County, a place that overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump, who maybe believe that the results of the 2020 election were, were fraudulent or wrong. You have a lot of people who are just distrustful of voting machines. And you also have the one pushing these claims in Nye County and in other counties, Jim Marchant, Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Nevada. He believes that voting machines are, are hackable, that they're not safe, He wants to get rid of voting machines and move to all paper voting and hand counting of votes, basically eliminating technology from the election process. And earlier this year, the Nye County commissioners voted to ask their clerk to stop use of electronic voting machines in future elections. At the time, the the clerk, Sam Merlino, she did not adhere to that request. This year, she conducted the primary like normal, but facing that pressure, she decided to, to retire early. And so as of August 5th, she was no longer the Nye County clerk or the top election official in Nye County. And the, the commissioners were the, the ones who were able to appoint a new clerk in her place. And his name, Mark Kampf, he is distrustful of voting machines. He sides with the commissioners in, in their beliefs about Dominion voting systems, about the security of our elections. Someone else I talked to was Carrie Dermick, the Nevada State Director of All Voting is Local, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that wants to break down all those barriers to the ballot box. And they want to get more people out to vote. I asked Carrie about the biggest concerns All Voting is Local sees with changes to the election process here in Nevada. My biggest red flag right now is going to be in Nye County. So we just saw Mark Camp get appointed as the Nye County 
county clerk. He said that he is going to do a paper ballot in hand counting election system this election. So we are very concerned in a lot of election studies, hand counting is shown to be way less accurate than tabulation or electronic voting machines. So I think that's the first concern. The second is going to be the cost to the Nye County taxpayers. They're going to need hundreds and hundreds of poll workers to be able to count these ballots. And then I think one thing that a lot of people are not talking about is the country is currently in a paper shortage. And so do they do they have enough paper ballots at this point right now? So given these election changes that are going on in Nye County, the state has actually gotten involved. The Secretary of State's office, which oversees voting across Nevada, is issuing temporary regulations to account for the changes in elections for the midterms. So the state is actually in the middle of of stepping in. Right now, they've proposed a temporary regulation that would basically govern the the hand counting of ballots. So these proposed temporary regulations would require local election officials to follow certain procedures for tallying votes, and they'd have to submit plans for meeting numerous election deadlines, and they'd also have to ensure that hand-counting teams are not all the same political party. But as Sean has reported, the regulation itself has received some pushback. Here's Kerry again. We are we do not agree with the Secretary of State's approach currently, and all voting is local, the Brennan Center, and ACLU of Nevada, and maybe a few other orgs will be issuing a letter laying out why we don't agree with it and what that we think they should be doing instead. So actually, some counties in the U.S. still hand count ballots, but there's one pretty big caveat to that. The average hand count jurisdiction has less than 800 voters. So how many voters does Nye have on average? Here's Carrie again. The biggest concern with Nye is it is almost 50,000 people and like we're looking at 30,000 voters. And so I don't I I am not aware of a county that large that is doing hand counting uh, currently. Your ballot has a higher chance of being inaccurately counted just due to human error in the hand counting process. So much, much lower error when it comes to tabulation of electronic voting machines. I also wanted to know, you know, how does this hand counting process actually work? Is it as simple as it sounds? Here's Sean to explain. It's as simple as an election worker is looking at a ballot. They have pen and paper and they tally the votes. So they're they're running through maybe somebody voted for Joe Lombardo in the Republican gubernatorial primary. That's a tick. Somebody voted for Joey Gilbert. That's a tick. And eventually you just have a a set of tallies and and those are your hand counted votes. There are some different ways that that process can happen in terms of, you know, is somebody looking over their shoulder, overseeing how they're tallying these votes, making sure that it's accurate. Are there are there bipartisan teams that are doing this, making sure that it's not a group of entirely Democrats counting votes that are that are being cast. I was also curious if this process would eliminate machines entirely or if they would still be involved in the process in some way. And the answer is sometimes. It depends on the county. In Nye County and just using these other couple counties as, as an example, Esmeralda and Lander, they did use the tabulators. And then in addition to that, they hand counted ballots. And Mark Kampf, the new Nye County clerk, has said that he wants to do a parallel tabulation process, which would basically involve 
running all of these paper ballots through the tabulators and then also having people hand count all these results so there's a redundancy in the system to make sure those results are accurate. There are several concerns that people have posed that come along with the system of hand counting ballots in Nye County. One is how voters with disabilities will cast a ballot if it's a paper-only election. Another concern revolves around deadlines. I think the biggest risk is going to be not be able to certify on time. So the certification deadline is 10 days after election day. And so if if they are still counting ballots after the certification deadline, that will be a big problem. And the Secretary of State's office and possibly even other state and federal entities will have to step in. The issue for some who say that the election was stolen is with a particular company, Dominion Voting Systems. This distrust of voting machines following the 2020 election, a lot of the conspiracy theories about the the security of the election revolved around Dominion Voting Systems, a company that in 2020 was providing voting systems to 16 out of 17 Nevada jurisdictions. And a lot of the, the conspiracies from the election revolved around them saying that they had ties to Venezuela, all of these ridiculous conspiracy theories that have not been proven true. So we've got this long list of concerns, and given those concerns, I wanted to know if there was any benefit at all to switching to a system of just paper ballots and hand counting. In some of these counties, the benefit would be restoring public trust. That's what a lot of the people pushing these ideas say. They say people don't trust our elections, and there certainly is some evidence of that, even even just in polling that the India has done, that, that people are not trustful of the results of the election. So this is in a certain way, trying to restore that trust. However, from a security standpoint, it's not really clear that this does anything to make the results more secure. In fact, hand counting because of human error is more prone to to errors than running ballots through a tabulator would be. Okay, so where do we go from here exactly? With these changes in elections and pervasive rhetoric of unfounded voter fraud and continuing pressure from the right to secure elections, that's driven a lot of election officials to either retire or step down or just not run for re-election. Looking at the, the 2020 election and where we're headed in, in the 2022 general election, more than a third of the top county election officials in Nevada are going to be different from that, that previous election. There's, there's certainly been a lot of turnover. There's a lot of new faces that are, are heading up elections in counties across the state. Even in our our second most populous county, Washoe County, a lot of it is really going to come down to working with the Secretary of State's office, making sure that people are aware of the laws and the regulations are in place, and certainly just making sure that that communication continues so that these new clerks can be aware of all of the responsibilities that come with the job, because there there certainly are, are quite a lot, especially in the rural counties where some clerks may also be their county's treasurer or their county's recorder, and they have a whole host of other responsibilities that go with that. And here's Carrie with All Voting is Local on what they think this rhetoric is going to do to voters. I don't think that this narrative is persuading people. I think it's only, it really feels like it's actually pushing people to go vote and make their voice heard to show how safe and secure our elections are here in Nevada. This story was reported and produced by myself, Joey Lovato, and Sean Galanka, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley.
Alright, well, while we question why some laws are changing, there are attempts to change other laws, and there's a potential battle brewing over a county ordinance involving strip clubs and gaming. That's right. So during the pandemic, the adult entertainment industry and brothels were some of the last businesses to reopen, and that greatly impacted their revenue streams. Yeah, and, and there's one strip club in Las Vegas, and it's, it's looking to recoup some of that lost profit by bringing slot machines into the club. But there's a gaming regulation that prohibits adult entertainment industry operators from bringing gambling into their establishments. Reporter Howard Stutz has more. Alrighty, well, I am here with our gaming reporter, Howard Stutz. And Howard, we are talking about something interesting today. I, I think this is actually a pretty fascinating topic, getting gaming licenses in the state in strip clubs. You know, Nevada has a, a pretty thriving adult industry, and in Vegas, there's a lot of strip clubs. And I didn't know this, but you actually can't have gaming. You can't have gambling in a strip club, right? Technically. Gaming has to be, let's, let's go a little history first. A lot of these, these strip clubs, the older strip clubs, they had a cover fee. That you had to pay a certain amount to come in. Now the newer ones, they basically they don't have a cover here. They usually charge crazy bottle service prices for champagne or or whatever. Gaming has always had to be accessible under Nevada law to those that are 21 and over, but there should, can't be a cover fee. So you have to be able to come in to a casino and, and gamble. It's got to be accessible. There's no fee to play a slot machine, that type of mm -hmm. thing. That's where that's where this started from. But Clark County, a while back, put in an ordinance that said slot machines, gaming can't be within 250 feet of a strip club. What we're seeing now with the, with the application by Sapphire, which is the largest strip club in Las Vegas by far, it's the old Las Vegas sporting house. It was a huge workout facility converted to a strip club back in the early 2000s. They want to carve out a, a tavern inside this place, inside this facility, put about a dozen bar top slot machines. They said the tavern will not have viewing of the, they won't have any topless waitresses. It will not have viewing of the strippers. It will just be its own tavern. And that's what they're arguing for. And Clark County is taking 60 days to study the issue. What's the purpose around not being able to gamble around strippers? Is there some legal issue there? Why can't, why can't those two things mingle? You know, it's just always been that gaming and topless bars, strip clubs, are not compatible. Now you have, now there's an argument that you have topless entertainment on some of the shows on the strip, the big the Jubilee and the different production shows had topless entertainment, but that's not the same as sticking dollars into a G-string of some, of some dancer. It's a very different type of entertainment. So that's not, you can't compare those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you, you, in your story that you wrote about this, there are actually two strip clubs in Las Vegas that do have gaming. And it's, it's kind of because they are grandfathered in. Is that right? Yeah, Joy, you're correct. There are two clubs, Club Platinum and Played Against Sam's. They, Played Against Sam's was a tavern restaurant, very well established. But then the owners decided to convert it to a, a topless entertainment facility. But because they had slot machines during their during the time as a restaurant tavern, they were able to keep the slot machines under some grandfather clause for the location. The argument for Sapphires is that it was closed during the during the pandemic. This type of adult entertainment 
part of Las Vegas has not has come back slower than others. So they want to try to recoup revenue by adding slot machines. And first off, they got to go through Clark County and at least one kind of interesting point here. One Clark County commissioner, the chairman, Jim Gibson, pointed out that he said, that we don't think this is compatible. If somehow they get through Clark County, they then have to go in front of the Gaming Control Board. Jim Gibson's son, Bryn Gibson, is the chairman of the Gaming Control Board. So, and then it's got to go up to the Gaming Commission. The attorney for Sapphire, David Brown, is married to one of the Gaming Commissioners. Uh, so she would have to recuse herself. So it's just, I don't know how, how far this will get through. I think I think this could be dead on the vine at some point, but that's just the way it is in, in Nevada. Is there's gaming takes place in a lot of crazy areas in Nevada, a lot of crazy facilities, I mean, but you can't have it in conjunction with a topless nightclub. Yeah, and so this is everywhere in Nevada. It's not just in Las Vegas, right? Right, it's not just Clark County, it's it's everywhere. And you you mentioned adult industries took a pretty big hit during the pandemic. They were the last to come back, and that includes strip clubs and brothels. They also thrive off the convention business in some ways. And the convention business has also been slow to come back in, in Clark County. So that's one of the arguments that Sapphire is making to try to get this the slot machines in there and, and put this tavern in there, which is a way to help rebuild their business. And one thing that I read in your story too was, you know, a lot of places that you go that are like, you know, you go to a restaurant and there's some there's some bar top slot machines there and those have limited gaming licenses, right? What What is the difference between like a limited gaming license versus like a full gaming license where you have like craps tables and stuff like that? Restricted, restricted gaming is called. The non-restricted licenses are the casinos with everything. Restricted gaming licenses are carve out license that allows for a bar, a tavern to have up to 15 slot machines. Most of the times they're managed by a route operator, a slot route operator that manages machines and then shares in the revenue stream with the owner or gets a, a fee. That's a car ride that we see all over Nevada. And you see these in the, in the different bars. You go into a different restaurants where there's a bar area set up and the bar has 15 slot machines embedded into the bar top. That's a, that's, that's a business that's, that's actually growing outside of Nevada now. They're in Montana. They're all over Illinois. Uh, Nevada, we've always seen slot machines in grocery stores. That is part of part of restricted gaming license. We saw them in laundromats for a while. We still see them in convenience stores. They have a little set up there with five slot machines. That's restricted gaming. I guess it's it's so interesting. Then like it's like yo, you can go you can go do your laundry and gamble. You can go to the grocery store and gamble. But for some reason, you can't go to a strip club and gamble. And and like in my head is, do you think it's because of like the competition with the casinos where they're serving a similar clientele and the casinos want to have more more control over the money flowing into them instead of into the strip clubs? Absolutely. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, the, Sapphire wanted to put a resort style pool and the uh, Nevada Resort Association, which represents the casinos, fought it saying, you know, that's the purview of the uh, casinos. They still were able to get it through. That got passed and they have this big resort pool style area at Sapphire. The argument can be made here, say you put slot machines in Sapphires, what's to stop a casino from opening a strip club in the, in the casino? That's where this line is, you know, resorts have their entertainment. They don't want their gambling customers gambling in a strip club. I mean, that's really mm -hmm. what it boils down to. Well, that's a really interesting, a really interesting dynamic. You, you you never think of how the the sins of Sin City interact, but but here they are butting heads in a way. 
I think on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up, but I'm sure we'll hear more of these interesting stories and kind of the inner workings and dynamics of gaming in Nevada. And Howard, you have a newsletter that comes out every Wednesday, Indie Gaming, which people can subscribe to for free. For free. Just sign up with your email and you'll get it in your mailbox every Wednesday. All right, cool. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime, Joey. Thanks for having me on. As Nevada grows, builders look to provide residents with new homes. And one developer, Jim Rhodes, wants to build homes near Red Rock Canyon, a national monument. Environmental groups and the Clark County Commission have pushed back on this effort for years. To learn more about this ongoing battle, CityCast Las Vegas lead producer Sonia Swanson talked with our reporter, Daniel Rothberg. This is just a chunk of a longer discussion they had, which you can find over on CityCast Las Vegas' feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Almost as far back as I can remember, we've been hearing about the fights and legal battles around Red Rock. I mean, you've all seen those Save Red Rock bumper stickers, right? But why have these battles been going on for so long? Here to help us parse this out is contributor Daniel Rothberg, environment reporter for the Nevada Independent. He just wrote an incredible in-depth investigative piece about the latest legal challenge brought on by a developer who wants to build more homes right next to Red Rock Canyon. And it's not as clear-cut as you might think. I feel like for as long as I can remember, there have been fights over development around Red Rock Canyon. Am I wrong? I feel like it's just been going on for almost all of my life. No, you're absolutely right. It is a, you know, ongoing issue, the encroachment of development and different pressures on the National Conservation Area. And it has been going on even longer than that, just 20 years. The main flashpoint in the last two decades has been a proposal by Jim Rhodes, a prominent, well-known developer in Las Vegas who purchased a gypsum mine outside of the Red Rock National Conservation Area to redevelop the land for higher density housing. And there was very quickly a backlash that prompted action at the legislature. They unanimously passed a bill preventing the county from rezoning the land. But the idea is is that there has been this tension around development and conservation of Red Rock. It sounds like this development, which has been contentious for the last couple of decades plus, has hit yet another road bump. So it's it's complicated is the yeah. short answer. But in 2010, after Jim Rhodes sued the county and the state, over the law that I had mentioned, he entered into a settlement agreement with the county that allowed him to submit a proposal for higher density than the land is already zoned for. The land right now is zoned for rural, low-density housing, and that's it. But Rhodes has Mm -hmm. always wanted to build more homes than the current density allows for. And the settlement agreement allowed him to submit an application to do so and it required that the county process that application in, quote, good faith. In 2011, Rhodes and the company that he operates, Gypsum Resources, submitted a concept plan, an initial plan for higher density housing 
pretty much adjacent to the Red Rock National Conservation Area. The county commission, I believe it was a five to two vote, approved that concept plan, but included a long list of conditions. And one of those conditions was that roads and gypsum resources must obtain a federal road permit before proceeding because the land is surrounded by federal public land. So flash forward to today, that road permit continues to be an issue with the development. What do opponents of these building projects argue? So they vary from project to project, of course, but in general, you have potential impacts on wildlife, whether that's a desert tortoise or other wildlife. You have potential impacts on vegetation and ecosystems and having more traffic in the area. That's that's a big concern for a lot of people is, you know, having more traffic in this area. The presence of a master plan community in the area would significantly change the experience of going to Red Rock. That's what the activists around this issue argue. It's something that the county recognized even before Rhodes submitted his plan back in the early 2000s. The predecessor owner of the gypsum mine had had submitted a similar plan to build there. And the county said that it was out of character with the area. So this is what advocates of groups like Save Red Rock Canyon say, what about developers? What are developers saying? I think that there, obviously, there are people who want to live near Red Rock. If you look at Summerlin, if you go to the website for the Bonnie Springs houses, they are, you know, this is like a luxury community that they're building out there. But the question is, I think, in the case of Gypsum and Rhodes, is what is the county's role? What is its discretion where do those lines begin and end, taking into consideration the history of the past? Now, Rhodes is making all these allegations of corruption and delays and deal-making that slowed down a decision on his project. And he argues that the county, because it has upzoned or increased the density for other projects historically, that project should be treated the same. Now, the county argues that it has discretion. It doesn't have to do that because this is a unique area, because of all sorts of different reasons, and because of this condition that roads had to get a federal road permit before proceeding. Maybe there's a little bit of gray area here where maybe it's not just a question of like to develop or not to develop, but also how to develop if development does occur. Red Rock Canyon is already protected. We've established these boundaries already. Why are environmentalists asking for increased protections in those borderlands around Red Rock Canyon? Like what's what's special about the kind of development, the low density development that activists are asking for? So the, the line from Save Red Rock and some of the other groups that have opposed increased density on the private property that Rhodes certainly has rights to build on. They argue that Rhodes knew what he bought and he should build for what he bought, for the density that he he bought. And their argument is that building higher density, having a master plan community where you potentially have grocery stores, where you potentially have restaurants, where you potentially have other types of businesses, that is going to significantly alter the character of this national conservation area, this area that already faces so many pressures 
in this area that is so beloved by so many people in Las Vegas, just because the land doesn't fall within the borders of the conservation area, they argue, doesn't mean that it's not sensitive land. So are there any environmentalists or advocates for Red Rock Canyon who agree that there is such a thing as responsible development near Red Rock Canyon? Yeah, I think that a lot of the environmentalists who've been involved in this would say, yeah, we recognize that Jim Rhodes and Gypsum Resources have a property right, but we want them to build for the rural zoning, which I think is about one house for every two acres, so 0.5 per acre. That's significantly different than a large-scale master plan community. It is the year 2022. Why are we still arguing about development around Red Rock? It has been decades. What's going on? I think that there are a variety of reasons for that, but the dynamic has been that the county has long feared a lawsuit from Rhodes, and they approach this issue in a very circumspect way. They entered into a settlement agreement with Rhodes in 2010. There is all this legal uncertainty and interpretation around what these property rights exactly are. I think that as some of the documents that are reported on show, there was a hesitancy to make a decision about this issue and kind of some delays that went on. So ultimately, it's continued to stay alive and it's continued to be litigated. This is now, you know, the second big lawsuit in the 20 years that this issue has been going on. So it sounds like we'll continue to see the Save Red Rock bumper stickers for for a while yet around town. I think so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Carrie Dermick, Sean Galanka, Howard Stutz, Sonia Swanson, and Daniel Rothberg for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with the art that you drew on the back of your napkin while waiting for your Zoom lunch meeting to be over, or whatever else is on your mind, at podcast at theNVindie.com. Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.